By some accounts, the COVID-19 virus has not impacted children as much as it has adults, at least not in the severity of symptoms, hospitalizations, and deaths. But children, especially in Oklahoma, may be particularly vulnerable to the economic fallout the coronavirus has brought. Earlier this week, the Oklahoma Institute for Child Advocacy and Prevent Child Abuse Oklahoma joined a national effort to urge Congress to offer additional aid to help children and families during the COVID-19 pandemic. While the federal government has already sent billions to communities and businesses across the country in stimulus funds, the two local organizations said there are still tremendous needs being unmet. I'm Ben Felder with The Frontier. And on this week's episode of Listen Frontier, I speak with Joe Dorman, Chief Executive Officer of the Oklahoma Institute for Child Advocacy, and Sherry Fair, Executive Director of Parent Promise and Prevent Child Abuse Oklahoma, about the impact the coronavirus pandemic and related school closures and business closings are having on Oklahoma children. Well, Sherry and Joe, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank hey, you I, very much for having us. Yeah, I'm I'm really eager to talk to you guys about the work that you you both are doing, your organizations are doing, important at any time, but especially right now during this pandemic and the impact it's having on the economy and schools and communities. Uh, but first, and we can start with you, Sherry, can you kind of give us a little bit of an introduction to your organization and, and the work that you do? Sure, thank you. Um, my organization is Parent Promise, Prevent Child Abuse Oklahoma. And so primarily what we do is um, home-based parent education support. Most of our families have a number of risk factors in their, their lives. And so we go into the homes and we um, help the parents understand about uh, the different developmental stages of the child and what they sh- what should they expect and what's normal. and um, come in with activities, take a whole family approach, try and lessen some of the um, stressors in the family unit that uh, can cause child abuse and neglect. And then on the other side, for Prevent Child Abuse Oklahoma, I join with people like Joe at OICA, and we work to raise awareness among the general community, as well as um, our elected officials about the importance of the prevention of child abuse and neglect. Joe, what about what about you? Can you kind of tell us a little about your organization? Absolutely. The Oklahoma Institute for Child Advocacy was formed in 1983 as a result of the Terry D. lawsuit. And it was recognized then that there needs to be a voice at the state capitol, both with lawmakers and with state agencies, to ensure that children's issues are kept in mind. And we never want to go back to those days. And so since those uh, those times, we're working to try and help raise further awareness on the issues that are happening day in and day out with the emergence of COVID-19, with what we've had to shift to as far as a state, a nation, a world in the last 60 days, we've had to shift our mission also. We've done more outreach to individuals trying to help raise awareness of programs that are available, issues that are occurring, and trying to engage more, not only at the state level, but expand our reach to the federal level and encourage more awareness to our federal delegation of what's happening here in the state and the needs that we face 
as citizens of Oklahoma. Yeah, that's great. And, and I want to ask you both about you know this idea of, of child abuse right now during this time of of, of children that are that are stuck at home. I, I, I think it was like in the early days of this pandemic when we were still trying to kind of figure out what it meant for schools to close and those kind of things. And I was talking with a a, a child therapist who had mentioned that in the days after a spring break, so we were headed into spring break and, and schools were announced that they were going to be closed. This therapist mentioned that in the days after spring break, there's usually a an increase in, in, in child abuse and welfare calls. And the idea being that when kids come back to school, where they have an adult in their life that can act as a, as a protector and, and someone who can kind of notice some of these signs and identify them, that the abuse that happened during break can now be identified. And it was just kind of a chilling statement because we, we didn't have that after spring break this year. Kids didn't return back to school. What's, what is the danger and the risk right now with, with so many kids who may be vulnerable to, to abuse, uh, you know, being essentially stuck in their homes with, with an abuser? Well, the risk definitely increases because I, I think for us, um, a lot of, of what we do is we go in and we help identify the stressors. And two of the biggest stressors when we talk about um, adverse experiences that affect children in negative ways, the first one is growing up in poverty. And the second one is living in a household with um, where there's some sort of substance abuse. Those, those um, create... Um, the most difficult challenges for children, both currently and as they, they grow up, they have the biggest impact. So what you have right now is you have families, some of which before COVID-19 would never have been considered low income or in poverty. And um, now they're, they're at home and they've lost their jobs and they're highly stressed and you're stuck in the same four walls for a <laughs> I don't know how long we've been stuck here. Several weeks we've been stuck yeah. in the same four walls, and um, it's it's highly stressful. And so, not only is is the opportunity to become very stressed and to lash out at at someone who's around, such as a child or or a spouse or anyone else, um, it's it's just a, a difficult time because the child's not leaving the home on a regular basis to go to someone they see on a regular basis, such as a teacher or a daycare worker, or even in summer camps, you may only be there yeah. for one week, but you, but you see the same person every day for five days straight. So I think the real concern is that the spike that the therapist talked about that comes after spring break, unfortunately that spike may very well come back after we can get back out to normal activities be they those summer camps, summer school, uh, church camp, any of those. And so it's just it's real concerning that um, we don't know what's going on in those four walls right now. And although at um, Parent Promise, we're still doing um, home visits virtually by Zoom, or and I guess we don't do them by Zoom, that doesn't have enough uh, security to it, but they're Zoom-like products, or we uh, talk to them on the telephone but, you know, we can't we can't see what's going on in those homes where we're used to being and where we, we know that things don't look right. We know that things don't seem right. Um, I've talked to DHS workers where they're doing virtual walkthroughs of the house. But we all know if there's a corner of my house I don't want you to see, I'm not going to take my phone over there. Oh, yeah. um, so there, there's, a, there's just a lot of concerns, and that is why it's so important that we're asking our Oklahoma delegation to really push for increases in funding in these two acts, because we're going to need 
more um, financial help in these areas because I already wish I had um, a staff of a hundred people who could do home visits, but you know, I, I only have a staff of 18. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, well you, you mentioned that let's, let's talk about the community-based child abuse prevention grants and the child abuse prevention and treatment act that uh, Joe and Jerry, you both joined in on a, on this, this national push for more funding in these areas. Uh, first off, Joe, can you tell us a little about what this act is and, and what these prevention grants are and exactly what uh, what you guys are hoping to see um, from Congress? We're making an appeal to the congressional delegation from Oklahoma and in fact, all the members of Congress to consider these programs as they're looking for future aid to support the different agencies. Uh, many of these agencies are run through the state and most of the states are suffering economically right now. Oklahoma has a dual impact with not only the downturn because of COVID-19, but also with what we're seeing with the oil and gas sector. It's going to be devastating for state agencies. So we know the funds are going to be hard fought to get at the Capitol this year. So we're asking for Congress to look at a program similar to what we saw a decade ago to help support these agencies and ensure that these vital children's programs are fully funded or receive as much funding as they possibly can. Uh, the appeal is for the members of Congress as they pass another budget bill, one that's not directed through the SBA, not directed for individual support, look at what agencies are facing at the state level in all 50 states and the territories and provide support for those much needed programs. Most of the states operate on a physical year budget and the legislatures are considering those budgets right now and so they need to get those funds out quickly so the appropriations committees in each of the states and the lawmakers can allocate those dollars to the agencies or give the governors the authority to make sure that those dollars are sent into those vital programs programs like one sherry operates through they receive funding through a state agency so many of our different nonprofit organizations do their services, they provide the support to their families through those allocated dollars from state agencies. And we cannot afford to miss a beat with the problems that we're facing. How, how vulnerable are these are these programs just in general to economic declines? I mean, we've obviously seen uh, declines here in Oklahoma. You mentioned, oh, you know, when oil is down, it's always a tough time for the state budget. Are these programs and agencies like especially vulnerable to economic downturns? Absolutely. And you can ask Sherry that because she witnessed it firsthand in the last economic downturn, the last time we saw budget problems when our health department was facing issues, their program was one of the first ones on the chopping block. Unfortunately, it's easy for lawmakers to cut preventative measures rather than those those programs that they show a hard number. So say Medicaid, they know exactly how many people are going to qualify for Medicaid with a preventative program it's easier to say, well, we're going to reduce this down. And that's the mistake. That, that's the worst thing you can do because we're seeing such great success with those preventative measures, especially when Oklahoma is the worst in the nation in so many of these categories. Yeah. Well, and, and I think too, and what Joe's referring to is like a couple of years ago when um, things were really difficult with the state budget because of uh, the oil and gas downturn. Um, when the state budgets were cut, uh, we actually did a little bit of an analysis in uh, my agency. And actually, 
child abuse prevention services within the health department were actually cut at a higher rate than the health department budget was. And, and again, it goes back to what Joe says, it's, it's the prevention. And it's, um, but, but what lawmakers really need to understand is we, we all know oil and gas is a cyclical business. And so even if it comes back in a couple of years, a few years down the road, it, it, it may take a downturn again. So what we need to do is we need to be investing money on the front end of issues like child abuse prevent, prevention and neglect uh, so that on the back end, we don't have to put so much money into um, helping children who have developed mental health problems, physical health problems, learning disabilities, maybe going down the wrong road because they've never really had to learn to um, bond with their parents and they end up in juvenile detention. Um, and then they, they grow up and go into the um, adult um, system. So it's we really need to concentrate on how important the prevention dollars up front because everything in Oklahoma we say we want so that we'll be a top 10 state, it really starts with our children and it starts with our children growing up healthy. And so it's so important for us, um, like people like Joe and me and those that help us in the other community organizations to really you know, we go up to the Capitol, uh, Joe works more at the federal level than I do, but, um, you know, to really help lawmakers understand the importance of child abuse and prevention. And I don't know how Joe feels, but I feel within the last three or four years, we've really made a lot of progress in helping at least our Oklahoma lawmakers understand that. Yeah. I would agree with that. Uh, the lawmakers that we have, it's a unique situation what we faced in Oklahoma with such a high number of freshmen elected over the last two or three election cycles. So we've had to do a re-education process for these lawmakers as they come in. As a lawmaker turns out, decides to leave early, we need to bring that information to this new crowd that's coming in. And we have some tremendous lawmakers who truly care about these issues and want to fix the problems. They're not as jaded as what we've seen in the past. And so it's been much easier to work with the lawmakers in recent years to help raise awareness and they recognize these problems and they want to see solutions. So and they're Joe, willing to think outside the box. And Joe, I think it's been nonpartisan too. I, I think that I have certainly experienced that when I go up to the capital of Oklahoma, um, in Oklahoma City, I think it's very nonpartisan that, that if you can get 10 or 15 minutes of their time, um, they, they start to understand. And, and I also want to say, as far as our national delegation goes, I know that um, some of our board members have a close relationship and, and, and I know Representative Cole and, and Senator Langford, and they both, Senator Langford has just been absolutely awesome during this um, stimulus package timeframe. And um, so we, you know, we have a good national, a good federal delegation too, that, that understands the importance of this issue. And so it's just, you know, you just, sometimes you gotta take baby steps and be patient, <laughs> but you know, I think we're, we, we realize we can't really be that much patient anymore, especially with all the things that could happen with them, children for COVID-19. Yeah, I agree with Sherry. Uh, having uh, Kendra Horn as a, in the majority party on the house side, having uh, uh, Senator Lankford who's done weekly calls with nonprofit organizations, been on the Oklahoma Center for Nonprofits call, has done his own telephone town halls. It's been really good to have those individuals out there helping out and sharing that information. And they've in fact have authored 
legislation to try and assist nonprofits and assist some of these issues we're facing. And, and you talk about that kind of advocacy to lawmakers, and Joe, you would you know very well, you're a former member of the legislature yourself, that um, you know it seems like a lot of people when they run for office, they may be coming from a position of maybe they're a business owner or you know, maybe they've been a, a mayor in their town or, you know, so they're running on this idea of, you know, making a a, a better environment for businesses and, you know, maybe on education, but you don't really, really see a lot of candidates who are running on the platform of uh, preventing child abuse and and kind of getting into these issues and for understandable reasons, right? They're they're not always top of mind for people who kind of find themselves running for office. And so I would imagine that advocacy part is really important because this can, this could be an overlooked issue. Uh, You don't have tons of lobbyists up at the Capitol, I would imagine for, for, for children on this or for children in general, right? (laughs) Well, and that's one of the reasons we do our candidate survey every election cycle. OICA issues a candidate survey to those candidates running for the legislature, running for statewide office, and to the uh, individuals who are running for the federal offices. So the Oklahomans who click on the link, read the survey questions, read the answers, we publish all of them so voters can see how these candidates answer those questions. And we want to make sure we help raise that awareness Uh, One of the networks we work with, Partnership for America's Children, uh, encourages that in every state. And since I've been here at OICA since 2016, we followed through with that and made sure that we're getting those questions out, asking the candidates where they stand on supporting children's issues. And we we live it pretty broad-based. We ask a a generic question, and we want to give them the ability to type in their own honest answers and find out if they feel an answer of cutting budgets and putting more money in people's pockets is the right way to go, or they support services and want to make sure that they help provide the adequate dollars for state agencies. You you can look at the different political perspectives, but we want them to put it in their own words and let the voters read that and hopefully decipher through and make the best decision when it comes to who they feel would do the best job for representing kids at the Capitol, whichever Capitol it is. Yeah. Sherry, you talk about your experience a few years ago during the economic downturn and what we saw with budget cuts to agencies and, and, and the funding that flows to organizations like yourself. What did you what were some of the specific things that you saw? Uh, and then and, and what are you specifically worried about in the months to come if we if we do see some cuts in these areas? I mean, what what's going to be the real world implications? What are, what's going to be the impact to, to children that uh, that you're more you're most fearful of right now going forward? Well, I, I think what's most fearful is, you know, we, you talked about um, running businesses and things like that a few, a few minutes ago. Um, you know, our children are, we, we talk about our children being the future. Well, our children are our future workforce. And so if we don't start them off on the right track from the very beginning, they, um, we know that when children suffer enough adverse childhood experiences, which those are just when a child is young, zero to three, mm-hmm every experience they have has a great deal of effect on them as they grow, both um, physical health and and mental health. And um, if they have enough bad experiences, there's, there's a lot those, they will eventually start to have behavioral issues and those show up in about the fourth grade. So we really, it's so important that we put money toward this now and that we put, the professionals with the people who need help in understanding how they can be the best parent possible and raise healthy, well-adjusted children, because 
when people suffer a lot of adverse childhood experiences, they get sick earlier in life. And those are the things like COPD, um, hypertension, diabetes. So that means we spend a lot of money trying to keep them healthy. They may die sooner than they should have. Um, but the children themselves, they never, you know, they need to be able to enter preschool or kindergarten ready to learn, ready to be able to sit there and to concentrate when they need to and follow instructions. And when they don't have that capacity, when they enter school at that point, then those behavioral situations start to show up in the fourth grade and they start to lag behind and that puts them in special education. Um, it puts them at risk for going into the juvenile system that I mentioned earlier. So really it's just incredibly important that, that we have the resources we need, and those include the financial resources, so that we can be sure that our children are growing up healthy. And what, what the result of our contracts being cut was that some agencies had to just close, and those tended to be agencies in rural Oklahoma, because when we had to drop everything and raise money as fast as we could, that's a lot easier to do in, in Tulsa and Oklahoma City and the surrounding metro areas because there are more opportunities to raise money. So what you see when they cut services is you see these small nonprofits who get these state contracts, they, they disappear. And that means child abuse prevention disappears in those areas of the state. And before COVID-19, and I think Joe knew about this effort and he was helping us with it, we were asking for an additional $2 million to be put into the Child Abuse Prevention Fund. And the intent was for that money to go out into the rural communities that have, have since lost services because of the money that was um, taken from the programs. So um, it's it's, you know, and, and I'm probably still going to send a few emails and say, if you can do it, we'd love it. <laughs> but, but I know it's a difficult time. So um, I, I think that that's what we saw. We saw child abuse prevention agencies close. And that means that, that the families in those communities have no child abuse prevention services. Yeah. You reference the adverse childhood experiences, so the so-called ACEs, and and that's got yeah. a lot of attention here in, in, in recent years, and also here in Oklahoma because on on that score, you know, one of the states with one of the highest ACE scores, so uh, uh, children that are going through traumatic experiences, and so I think about the impact that this could have on a state like Oklahoma, where we may be especially kind of vulnerable, right? To these challenges we're, already. Well, we're extremely vulnerable. In fact, there's an organization called Child Trends. And they have done studies on the prevalence of ACEs in children in all 50 states. And in Oklahoma, we have the distinction of the eight adverse experiences that they measured. In every single category, Oklahoma is in the top 25 percentile for the most prevalence of those ACE scores in children. I mean, we, the only state, there's a whole paragraph devoted oh. to us. Um, so, Yes, I just, I just wanted to point that out. I mean, yeah. we, in Oklahoma, it's ACEs have an incredible impact on our society. Joe, as, as we wrap up this conversation, I'm curious, you know, what are some other issues that you're seeing right now in the immediate with, you know, the, the economic shutdown and, you know, businesses are going to be starting to open back up here in the days to come, but we know this isn't going to be, you know, an instant light switch turned on. I mean, we're going to be feeling this impact for a while, but right now, kind of what are you seeing, whether it's other organizations, your organizations, or just the needs of, of children right now in Oklahoma? 
Well, certainly for the organizations, keep them in mind because so many had to cancel programs. We had a luncheon that was scheduled at the governor's mansion. When you hear from the first lady, we had to cancel and that was a fundraiser. Uh, we were going to do a movie viewing of the, of the documentary Resilience, which talks about adverse childhood experiences. We had that scheduled for the last day of the month in March and had to cancel that because of the outbreak of COVID-19. So, so many organizations have had their mission disrupted and had to adapt to this new normal. And even though we're approaching a period of time when politicians say it's okay to open the doors back and we know the economy is suffering, people still need to be careful. Uh, those individuals who are highest at risk, the elderly, those with asthmatic conditions, other health conditions, they still need to be careful because when they're talking about reopening and it being safer, it may be safer for the, the, the statistical category, but it's not safe for certain individuals. So people need to be careful. And we certainly want to be careful about children being thrown back into a group setting because even if they get sick and they may not get that sick, they can pass it along to somebody who it could be a death sentence to them. So want individuals to certainly proceed with caution on how they jump back into life and, and we return to being around each other. With the state legislature finishing up by the final Friday in May, we know they're going to convene and discuss the budget. They're going to discuss some policy issues. We want to make sure that they're focusing on those key programs that are most important during these times and make sure that they keep Oklahoma families, especially those at-risk children, in mind. Uh, we have a lot of kids who are going to age out of foster care, and they're going into a world that's pretty strange. And they're going to need that assistance. Uh, the kids who were in the Office of Juvenile Affairs who were about to uh, be released from their time uh, spent in their facilities, again, they're going to be entering a strange world. So we need to make sure that youth services programs have funding, that the different programs throughout the state, whether it be rural or urban, they receive the adequate resources to be able to provide for those individuals, no matter whether they live in Oklahoma. And we need people just to remember these nonprofits are out there filling the gap when state agencies are having to cut back, when other programs are having to cut back. Each nonprofit has a specific mission that will help children. And if they're able to contribute, they certainly need to consider that and give to a program that's in need right now. And I can tell you every single nonprofit out there is struggling right now financially and they have that need. If it weren't for the PPP program, OICA probably would have shut their doors last month. Uh, that's what losing those fundraisers meant to us. And so people just need to remember there are programs out there that are filling a gap. They may not be struggling and suffering, but their neighbors are, probably are. And so contribute to a food bank, contribute to your church, wherever you feel comfortable giving. Find a program that's going to fill that need of what we're facing in the state and support them. Yeah. And, and I think so even even though, you know, to, to tag off of what Joe said, nonprofits are going to struggle for a while, too. And so it's important to keep them in mind for a while because we had to cancel an event, too. But we have our largest fundraiser coming up in the end of August. And I think we can we're, we're all really hoping and hopeful that by the end of August, you could gather it again, um, still being careful, but you could gather again. Well, we. We haven't quite decided definitely what we want to do, but a, but a big concern is, 
are you going to be able to not only raise enough money to cover the cost of your event, but then to, to make the money you used to make. And so, you know, all of our wonderful private foundation donors and all of our wonderful private individual donors, they're, they're going to start to suffer too, as all of the investments they, they have at some point in time are not going to yield um, the, the gains that they they did in the past. And so it's J Joe's right, even even if you feel like you can only give $20, um, you know, $20 is $20. And for nonprofits, we're, we're all thinking that, you know, we, we had the grants we had, we had the money that had been donated. But you know, as we go forward, it's 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 gonna be tough. I I've even thought of that way of my giving and, and all the messages I'm giving. It's like I I don't know what August is going to look like for me personally. I don't know what it's going to look like for us business-wise. And so, um, yeah, it's just like Joe said, we just have to keep supporting all nonprofits because we fill the gap that government can't fill because they can only go so far. And that is why nonprofits is a public-private partnership. Yeah. And I'll add on, our big event is in July. We do our, our award ceremony the final Friday in July. We've already shifted that to be a Zoom event, and we're going to do a meal delivery like an Uber Eats, a Postmates, uh, uh, partnering with restaurants to deliver the banquet meal to individuals so they can eat at home and watch the award ceremony uh, from the privacy and social distancing of their home. Uh, it's going to be so close on that, and so many of the attendees that come to our banquet are uh people who are in that high risk category. We didn't want to run the risk and it's difficult to sell tickets right now because people don't know if they can attend an event. So we just decided to go ahead and move it to a virtual event. And we're hoping that we will see that support and we have some great honorees, but it, it's a tough adjustment. And we, we had to cut the ticket prices basically in half of what we've done in the past because we know people can't afford to buy tickets right now, but not having a venue site uh, that, is saving us some cost and we found a creative way to work with the venue where we were going to do it to uh, still support them but not at the level of what it would have been to have it a, an event actually at their facility yeah and i think it's great that that joe brought up the that he's doing a virtual event in the zoom event because a lot of us are doing that and that is that's another new thing on our plate and i'd like to encourage all those out there listening to this that you guys try the virtual events. I know they seem awkward. I know you might you might think, why, why would I want to do that? I mean, you know, I think it could be fun if we could all just buy into it. But I mean, I, I would encourage people to drop, try the virtual events. It's, it's going to be the way to support nonprofits for the year. And there's some really creative things going on. Joe's idea of delivering food to people's homes through Grubhub or somebody. And, you know, I've seen a lot of, you know, a, not, Allied Arts and Artini right now, you know, you can go out and you can look at the art and you can bid on it. And so, I mean, I would just encourage people to set timers on their phones, just like they do for meetings or just like they do for other events. And um, it's, it's a great way to support your nonprofits that you can't get out there and sit around a banquet table and, and do right now. Yeah. Well, uh, Sherry and Joe, thank you so much. I mean, obviously this uh, virus is having such an impact on children and families. And then, as you said, the nonprofit uh, sector. So thank you for your work. Good luck with that. And, and good luck with your operations and your organizations as you guys yourself try to navigate 
uh, this uh, this challenging time. Well, thank, thank you, you for thank doing this. Yeah. Thanks for having us. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Listen Frontier. You can find previous episodes by subscribing to the Listen Frontier podcast feed. On Monday, I'll be back for another episode of COVID-19 in Oklahoma, where I'll be joined by my colleague at the Frontier, Cassie McClung, to talk about the latest on how the coronavirus is impacting our state. For the Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with you next week. Thank you.